I manage five billion. We're sparring right now with BlackRock. Yeah, they yeah. manage nine trillion. Nine trillion. Trillion with a T, Doctor Evil. And so, so they have nine trillion. There you go. I like that. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to 2024, the Money Mondays podcast. I'm here with my co-host, The Real Tarzan. So I used to say that he gets 200 million views a month, but it's been 10 days into the month of January and he already hit 200 million views and counting. So we're going to have to come up with a new number. We'll update you guys in a couple weeks when we hit January 31st on how many views this guy got in the month of January. Now, on the Money Mondays, we cover three topics, how to make money, how to invest money, how to give away to charity. Our guest today has done all that and a bag of chips and everything in between. I'm really excited to have him here with us today. He flew in from New York City. We've got to find out why is he in Los Angeles. Because back home in New York City for, I don't know how many years, we've got to find out how long. He's managed over $5 billion at Saba Capital. So, as you can tell, I'm excited. I've got a lot of questions for him. We actually met Charity Related at a charity poker tournament half a decade ago, maybe even longer inside of what's called Gotham Hall, which has a cool name to it. It is that cool. The place looks like Batman would play poker there. <laughs> <laughs> and so without further ado, let's do a quick two minute bio with Mr. Boaz Weinstein. Thank you, Dan. Uh, um, I am very excited to be here. I didn't fly in for you, but I would have flown in for you. Thank you. Thank you. If you asked me. Um, yeah, I've been investing since I was 15 years old. I got a job after school working at Merrill Lynch. And then in college, I got a job at Goldman Sachs. And, and so for 35 years, I've been uh, really focused on the markets, and um, and I'm so excited to get to talk to you about about the strategy. Now, why I came here is, you know, they say never meet your heroes. Be careful meeting your heroes. Right. And I was on Bloomberg TV. Um, it was the day after my 50th birthday, and they were asking me about the link between investing and games. Mm -hmm. um, you and I are both pretty damn good in blackjack, <laughs> poker, chess, and. Uh, and I referenced a man that I'd never met, but it long admired named Ed Thorpe, who's 91 years young, living in, in wow. Newport Beach. He's had some great, uh, great uh, episodes on uh, Tim Ferriss and others. And he's written an amazing book called The Man for All Markets. And so I, I referenced him and I said, by the way, as a bucket list item, I would love to meet Ed Thorpe and someone listening. You know, it's like Wayne Gretzky, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. I took right. the shot. I said, I'd love to meet him. Somebody connected us. And here we, here we are. So I had a two hour amazing lunch with the guy and I might reference him since he's basically my idol for how to think about investing. Wow, that's so cool. So did you already have the meeting? Yeah, yeah. Oh, very cool. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it lived up. Uh, <laughs> so it defied the the uh, never, never meet your heroes. Yeah. It exceeded my expectations. That so. is so cool. Yeah. All right. So let's go over the three core topics. Let's start with how to make money. So millions and zillions of people around the planet want to invest into the stock market. They're nervous, they're scared, they're excited, they have bad information, good information, they're researching, they're hearing, there's so much noise. How can people make decisions about how to research or learn to first get their feet wet into the stock market? Yeah, so I was listening to the show you did right at the turn of the year, mm -hmm. and you were talking about, uh, there were a couple of things that I thought were really interesting. We were talking about buy into companies where you understand the product, where you're attracted to the product, whether it's Amazon or Apple, and uh, and that really resonated with with the putting things in simple terms that investors can understand, because in the end, you have to have edge, right? Yep. You have to have edge in the market. You have to be able to understand where your edge is coming from. And if you don't understand the product well, how could you possibly think you have edge? Maybe you have some information <laughs> edge or right. some friend or some access. Yep. But what you were saying, you know, and I always struggle like to try to put things because I, I do derivatives and some things that are more complicated 
into English, and I felt like you were putting the words of of Peter Lynch from Magellan from Fidelity fame 40 years ago, um, where he said, look, my kids kept eating at Albon Pan back in the 80s in, mm-hmm. in New England, and uh, Panera eventually bought them. But but he said, I just I wasn't interested in the company until I saw what my kids were eating, my wife was buying, and and some of those stocks were, were 10 baggers for him. And, and so he put it that way, and I, and I think that 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 really resonates. Now, on the other hand, when you look at who are the leaders, like obviously Amazon, Apple, Tesla are going to be leaders in the future. But as a caution, you know, if you just look at leaders, because I think you can make a lot of money investing in bankrupt companies, and I'll give you an example, and you can lose a lot of money investing in great companies. And so if you look at, you know, what were the the great companies of 1999 during the internet, the first internet um, bubble, we had AOL, we had yeah. Excite at Home, we had Lycos, we had all sorts of things that are no longer Yahoo, that are no longer around, or even um, shadows of their former self. And so I think um, it's a balance, because you want to buy great companies, we have to buy them at the right price, and technology is evolving so quickly that what is a leader today it's possible back then we would have thought that AOL was going to be later today, sure, no matter what. For sure. So that that's one thing. What is my edge? Um, on top of that, you know, you might be doing something in the market where you're providing scarcity. So the main thing, if you look at like across cycles, what is the main way to make money is to provide scarcity. If you're if everyone's on one side of the boat and it sounds very sexy to be on that side of the boat, that's why everyone's there. Usually the price reflects too much about mm. how good or bad it is. If you can be on the other side of the boat and provide scarcity, sell when people want to buy, buy when people want to sell. In my career, that's been when I've made the most money is is taking the other side in extreme, volatile, chaotic situations. So that's actually a question I often ask at the end of the podcast is about how do people stay calm in the chaos? It sounds like chaos is actually good for you when it comes to investing, if you know what you're doing, if you understand the markets. What would you say to someone, especially going into an election year when there's going to be a lot of chaos, a lot of noise, a lot of media, the stock market's going to go up and down? How can people stay calm in the chaos? Right. So it's really hard because most of the time, first of all, the way I access it for our investors at Saba Capital is to do things that a retail investor can't do, to use derivatives and go short. And one of the main things we do for state pensions and endowments is provide crash protection. So I'm kind of a little bit in that sense, ambulance chasing, where like I'm hoping for a big event because that will be good for that strategy, even if it's you know bad for the market. Um, that's that's something very hard for for investors to access. So what can they do to deal with chaos? Is to I think is to have dry powder because you know people want to keep up with the Joneses. They want to be fully invested. Things are going up, you know, and you fall into this you fall into this trap of of wanting to stay fully invested. And if there are times where you don't, those times often you can't stomach staying out for six months. Mm-hmm. and But if you have dry powder to put to work in the market and you say, I'm going to do that after a 15% drop or a 20% drop, it can happen. You can get that drop. And then and then there's 100 reasons why not to invest. And I'm not saying it's necessarily a time to invest, but, but buying when people are selling. And I can give you some extreme stories back from COVID of like the unbelievable bargain. So one of the main thing for me is finding a bargain, and you can usually find bargains in chaos. I loved the way you framed that for the the Acai Bowl company yeah. that was able to arrange, this back again to that right. podcast two weeks ago, arrange really special leases when no one else is willing to sign leases. Right. And I think that, that to me is the main thing because you are A, doing something scarce, you should be rewarded for it, and B, you don't always have to have all, all your chips on the table and you can you can kind of invest in ranges and, and not think that you always have to be invested, which is for for me, I think a more defensive way to approach it. So you said a couple of key words I want to explain to people that are listening. 
First one was dry powder. Dry powder is essentially having extra cash sitting aside for special moments. So think about your piggy bank or think about your savings, not your savings to cover your life. So if you have savings set aside, let's say you've got 20K or 30K or 100K, whatever the number is, set aside to cover your overhead in case you lose your job or have a medical expense, that's not dry powder for investing. That's dry powder to protect your life. Over here, there's dry powder. You might save 10K, 20K, 100K, a million dollars. Again, the number is it's all relative to your situation. That money is ready for a situation, an investment. Something goes on in the market, you're like, wow, Tesla's gonna do this. Maybe I wanna buy more stock. Amazon's gonna do this. Maybe I wanna buy more stock. My friend is opening their seventh pizza restaurant. Maybe I wanna put in 25K into their seventh pizza restaurant. Dry powder is cash you have sitting on the side for those special moments. It's outside of your normal, like, normal investing money or your normal overhead. Dry powder is extra capital. You also mentioned something about shorting. Can you explain the main idea of what shorting a stock is or shorting a company is? Sure. So um, shorting was shown to be extremely dangerous during, of course, the meme stock craze with right. uh, GameStop, GameStop. And yeah. sure you were all over that. Um, <laughs> so but, but there are ways to be short using options uh, where all you can lose is your premium. So you buy a put, which gives you the right to sell a stock, the right but not the obligation. And in that way, um, in case the stock falls a lot, you can make multiples of what you put in, just like a call if the stock goes up, but all you can lose is your premium. Now, for us at Saba, we're shorting involving products that retail cannot access. They're called credit derivatives. We're shorting credit using what's called swaps. This is like this is not for today's conversation because it's not something we can all do, but, um, but there are things one can do to take advantage of chaos and dislocation that don't involve shorting, and we'll get to that with um, closed-end funds when, when we get there. So on a closed end fund side, can you explain, like, can someone listening that has 25 grand, 100 grand, 500K, a million, whatever the minimum is, can they actually invest into your world? Like we all watch billions, right? Watch billions on TV. We're like, yeah, I want to be like Axe Capital. I want to, I want to invest in that. But oftentimes they have a minimum of like $10 million or some crazy number that 99% of the world can't afford to get into. Is there a way for someone to be able to invest with 25K, 100K, 500K, whatever the number is to these closed end funds? Yes. So... Um, first of all, this kind of investment this is not going to be a double, triple your money. And, I, and I've, I've been more of the, the tortoise than the hare. And I think for all those things that go up 5x, there's a lot that go to zero. Sure, and if you can make a 10, 11% return um, over and over and over and over, and over, that's awesome. And, and again, going back to where's the edge, buying something at a discount. If you're, if you're paying full price for something that is not as good at buying at a 10, 15, 20% right. discount. So let's get to closed end funds. Yeah. They've been around for a century. They're sort of a predecessor to exchange-traded funds, ETFs, which um, probably most of your listeners know a decent amount about. They're on the New York Stock Exchange, 400 of them. There's another 300 in London, but let's stick to the US. And they are pools of assets. Maybe it's equities, maybe it's energy equities, or tech equities, or municipal bonds, or high-yield bonds managed by the most famous managers in the world, like BlackRock, um, PIMCO, right? Pick, pick somebody out here in California, uh, Pacific Investment Company. And it's a way for, for mom and pop to get one-stop shopping. If you want a pool of California munis or you want a pool of energy equities, they'll manage it for you and you can trade it in and out like a stock. And so these funds, which again, have been around forever. And I, I've had some nice conversations with both Ed Thorpe, who's 91 years young, with Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett did it in the 1950s. Ed Thorpe did it in the 70s and 80s. So we're not breaking new ground, but it's how we approach it and what's going on right now that makes it so exciting for me to talk about. So so why closed-end funds and how can investors listening profit from them? So 
we can screen them, we meaning even mom and pop or retail investors, and we can find that some of them are actually at 20 point discounts. So what does that mean? What does the discount mean? So you have a basket of things, in this case stocks, but let's just make it easy. Let's say you had a basket and you had, you know, I'm looking at a camera and I'm looking at a cup, okay? And the camera's 100 bucks and the cup's $1. Together, they're worth $101. Yep. That's net asset value. But that cup and camera inside of a box, and you can't break the box open and take the things out and sell them, you just can buy the box and sell the box. That 101 can go for 90, it can go for 80, and even some crazy cases and go for $70. Mm. So we are buying pools of California municipal bonds for 20 or 15 or 14 points below what they are objectively at, what everyone agrees they're at. And a discount is a great start, but that's not everything, right? So you start with a discount. You buy things over and over again at a discount. Well, discounts can sit there for 10 years. And what's right. the benefit of getting something at a discount if you can't sell it for fair? Right. So what we do at Saba is we buy up things at minus 16 and we keep going and we keep going. And if it doesn't naturally close, eventually we have a lot of it. Mm. And these companies, these closed-end funds, they have a board, they have an annual meeting, they're governed by the SEC on the New York Stock Exchange. And we get so much of it that if the manager will not press a button, because they have a button to press and turn that discount into no discount. And I'll tell you about that in a second. If they don't do the right thing, we will put people on the board, replace their board members and do the right thing. We've done that about six dozen times. Whoa. And so we're, <laughs> we're often sparring with these big managers. Whoa. I manage five billion. We're sparring right now with BlackRock. Yeah. They manage nine trillion. Nine trillion. Trillion. With a T, Dr. Evil. And so, so they have nine trillion. There you go. I like that. So, and they, they manage basically a quarter of the closed-end funds. And it's, you know, it's this behemoth, right, in New York. And there's a fund right now, the Blackstone Innovation and Growth Trust, Big uh, Z, it's called. Big Z, B-I-G-Z is the ticker. You can buy a dollar of things that Blackstone thinks are really smart tech investments for 81 cents. You can buy 81 cents on the dollar. You can buy... Um, a BlackRock New York Muni Fund, BNY, BlackRock New York, for 86 cents in the dollar. And and again, that discount is only is so good as if it's going to be um, uh, converted. And we buy up enough shares that we're now in both of those, at, a, at least in Big Z, at a spot where we own uh, something like 18% of the fund. And if we keep going, we will get to a spot where us people that want the discount to shut, which really should be everyone, people that are aware, people that are copying us, people that are just happen to be in it before us, where we will vote for someone on the board. The board's supposed to represent the investors, not management. The board of directors is supposed to be working for you, the shareholder, and they can press a button. And what is that button? They can merge it with a mutual fund, with an exchange traded fund. You have a mutual fund, you want to get your money back, you call your broker, he gives you back 100 cents in the dollar, he or she. Mutual funds, exchange traded funds, you always get in and out at fair. And if you can turn Presto, a closed-end fund, into an open-ended fund, discount goes away. And so we've been doing that left and right. We just, um, we've had dozens of successful campaigns in the last few years. We we won Activist of the Year, and, uh, and I had the most number of campaigns live right now, which is 64 different campaigns. So um, wow. we've, been, we've been busy. But I, I think for the retail <laughs> investor, this is an amazing way to pick the thing you want and get in at a discount and let us hopefully, um, you know, carry you to fair value. Okay. During COVID, there was SPACs, mm -hmm. especially. I mean, they were obviously for many years before that, but they got really famous in 2020, 2021. You saw Chamath do a bunch of them. We saw different characters getting into the space. I was getting bombarded with different deal flow. 
what is it special purpose acquisition company what is a spec yeah so specs are kind of cousins of closed-end funds so it's interesting you say that they're boxes that had a, a certain life to them so closed-end funds go, go forever for the most part and specs had a couple of years to find a flying car company or a biodegradable mm -hmm. you know a shopping bag company or something really cool like fabletics or whatever it was that wanted to go public crypto cyber whatever and someone would um, IPO it you'd have cash sitting in a box and if they could find a company to buy then that cash would be used to buy that company now there were 600 of them or so two years ago I don't know if you, you know this but at some point we went from having almost none of them to owning over six billion of SPACs I owned hundreds of them oh you own Sabah, you... I did they're they're basically all matured and gone now yeah. so SPACs what I love about closed-end funds I loved about SPACs when they started to trade at a discount because there was a point where again it was cash in a box like my um, example with the camera in the cup, and you can buy that cash for basically a 4% discount. So someone has 200 million, you can go buy it for 170, 180, or something like that. Mm -hmm. And if they find a great company to, to merge with, great. great. And if not, you just get your cash back. And so those are the kind of low risk, when I said tortoise versus the hare, that, that's the tortoise. The hare was in the height of the SPAC boom when it would go public at 10, it doesn't know who it's going to buy, it goes to 13 because people are excited, it's SoftBank, it's okay. Tremoth, it's whatever. Well, at 13, and they don't even know they're going to buy, could easily go back to 10. I got excited when they went to under 10. Right. But um, but so SPACs, I think back then there were almost 700. They were coming fast and furious. We would put in for every single deal. And um, uh, I woke up one morning, and uh, unbeknownst to me, I was the largest investor in the, Don <laughs> in the Donald Trump Truth Social Network. I didn't, didn't ask for that, didn't want it. <laughs> Got rid of it. Uh, got rid of it a little early, but um, you never know what what it would turn into. But out of seven hundred, there's now probably under eighty of them, and maybe it's a good time for someone who believes in themselves, who believes that there are some interesting private companies. You have a lot less competition, but SPACs have really shrunk, and closed-in funds um, around that time even grew. All right, we talked a bit about the craziness and making money, <laughs> and billions of dollars. Let's say that the real Tarzan. He gets an endorsement deal. Company comes to him like, you know what, Tarzan? Here's a quarter of a million dollars. And boom, all of a sudden, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, whatever, quarter million dollars shows up in his account. And he wants to start investing into the stock market. Uh -huh. What is someone that's a first-time investor that all of a sudden has a quarter million dollars to play with? What are their options, decisions, thought process when they first want to get in? Ah, So first, um, there's a level of how rich or cheap the stock market is compared to how much the companies are earning. And you can think about, is this a good time? Is it not a good time? You know, that's backward looking, how much it's earning, how much will it earn? Obviously, uh, it's all about what's happening in the economy. We had this inflation problem a, a year or two ago. Um, I think someone, I think your Tarzan example, first, let's, let's realize treasury bills, which two years ago were giving you zero, literally like 0.5 or zero, are giving 5% right now. Five and a quarter. Yeah. And that is not a bad place to say, okay, let's let's put some in that. That's our dry powder, because right. it's not sitting dead. It's sitting earning five and a quarter with right. no risk. I mean, anyone would want five and a quarter no risk than six with risk. Right. You know, expected six. I don't right. mean minimum six. So because um, that's where the risk comes in. So so put some into something ultra safe like a three month or a T bill, one month T bill, keep rolling it. And then some of it you should look for things getting back to the kind of uh, interesting uh, touch points you mentioned about investing in things you understand and and trying to find moments where those are at 
reasonable valuations, you can buy things at a high valuation and it will go higher. And that's that's actually a, a very much a winning strategy. Just look at NVIDIA, for example. Right. Um, and uh, But at least my style is to find things at a discount. So it would be, let's say Tarzan said, I want some uni bonds because I don't want to pay California uh, taxes. So I want to have something that's going to shelter me from taxes on my income. You can find... Um, you can find munis where you're getting 4%. So that's 4% after tax. That's pretty good tax adjusted. And then you have this discount and hopefully you can make another, that 85 going to 100. By the way, 85 going to 100 is not 15. 100 going to 85 is 15. You could all do it in your calculator. 85 going to 100 is 15 over 85, right? So that's more like 18%. Right. So that's, if, if I could achieve that as an investor in one year or even two years, you add that to the four for the, tax-free and you got a very nice double-digit yield. So I would put some into closed-end funds that are investing in something I believe in, whether it's tech stocks, energy stocks. Um, and um, and the discounts today, you know, I happen to be in your in your uh, studio today, but the discounts are basically as good as I've ever seen them. Okay. So for the last couple of years, I mean, I've been doing this for 10 years, but the last couple of years, I give this speech. It's called 40-40-20. I tell people, crowds around the country, 40% low risk, things that I want to make between 5 and 9% for the year. 40% medium risk, things that I'm hoping to make 10 to 30% for the year. And then 20% high risk, which I call my shot at glory, where I hope something crazy happens. 200%, 500%, 1,000%, but it's called high risk for a reason that it might not work out. What is Boaz Weinstein's yeah. thoughts on the 40, 40, 20? I, I really like that framing. I'm sure there's been other framings maybe, of course. but I happen to really like that. And we, so we happen to run two of these closed-end funds. Um, on the New York Stock Exchange. One of them, the ticker is my initials, BRW. No accident. I wanted to make sure people knew how important it was to me. And it, it um, in 2022, uh, you can see it in our investor letter, was the number one performing closed-end fund wow. uh, out of 247 of them. So I really care about it. And I kind of adopt a similar 40-40-20 in that I have a little bucket for speculative <laughs> startups. <Yep. laughs> um, and and so I think y you, sh you should be investing in, in growth. And in some ways, though this is not my expertise, I understand people that invest in like early stage artists where you're buying something for five or $10,000. If one of those hits, eventually it's a Basquiat or whatever, yeah. you know, you, you could have a thousand losers and you still have a, a giant win. And I think investing in tech early stage where you feel you have some access, you're not the, 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 the guy getting day old bread, you're getting something because you're connected to someone that brought you something interesting. But in that 20 of going for it, um, it really, sh I think should be early stage uh, companies. and. Um, and th this is actually a pretty good time to invest in them because some of the big investors like Tiger Global that was writing checks within hours of meeting a company <laughs> had huge problems in the last couple of years. And so capital is much harder to come by. And so I like I like that 40, 40, 20 a lot. Um, and um, and we, we um, we're not particularly known for the 20 of, in terms of our expertise, sure. but I, I've been doing it and uh, with pretty good results. Um, one thing about the 20. I'm going to give you an example of an e-cigarette company, Enjoy. I don't yeah. know if anybody, all right? Yep. So I invested in Enjoy when it was had a value of $300 million. It was number one market share. It was, I remember we were at the World Series, you and I, and yep. it was like on the, it was, they had on all the, the tables, yeah. on the tables. And it had Bruno Mars as a tastemaker. It had Sean Parker in the round. It had f former Surgeon General on the board. What could what could go wrong? And and, <laughs> and wrong? what could go wrong? <laughs> and my, uh, my uh, friend who ran research, runs research at Morgan Stanley, who, who is a tobacco analyst, said, I would put a chunk of my net worth into e-cigarettes. It's going to be a huge thing. So I do it. And the company basically gets run into the ground, goes bankrupt. 
Okay. Now, my friend, Jason Mudrick, I didn't even know it until after, like a year later, buys half the company for $100 million. So he buys a bankrupt company for his investors, half of it. And like five years later, sells it to Philip Morris for three and a quarter billion dollars. Okay. So you can invest <laughs> now. Now, I'm so happy for him. I'm so happy for him. I played poker with this guy, like on a heads up poker machine. <laughs> That's right. About. His, his penthouse was like $30 million. It was like, well, I'm, I'm not, I'm not talking about that topic, but, but, I don't uh, know what it was, it was crazy, <laughs> but that, you know, that shows you like you can invest in the same company you can get, it's all about timing, right? Once. Let's get back to, I, I had terrible timing. He had amazing timing. He bought it when it was bankrupt and made a huge success out of it after Philip Morris completely blew it with, um, Jewel, right? They paid 35 billion for Jewel. 35 wrote it, billion? Wrote it to zero. Wrote it down to zero. <laughs> well, it's they can afford it. It's Philip Morris. So, and and I, I bought it when it was a real company. He bought it when it was a bankrupt company. I did terrible. He did great. So so there's like a little bit of a lesson there, and and that path dependency, which is a little bit like butterfly effect. I'm gonna give you one other quick example. How you did on something, completely unrelated, should not influence some on some new investment, right. but it does. Right. It does, whether you're feeling poor, or whether you're feeling rich. My first boss, who was just a wonderful, is a wonderful man, Ron Tenemura, uh, when I was at Deutsche Bank, he told me the story, he's a Seattle guy, and he did private investing, and he was a pretty rich guy back in the back in the 90s, and he lost three quarters of a million dollars on some medical company. He goes in Seattle to the bottom basement of a color tile, um, off a color tile store building, in the basement is a guy he knew because they were both in the hedge fund world, a guy that worked at a firm called D.E. Shaw, who was starting out a company, and he could have bought 10% of it for a million dollars, and that guy is? Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos. <laughs> Jeff Bezos. And he came really close, but he was feeling a little bit, if I, the story, if I recall, he wasn't feeling it because he had just lost three quarters of a million in something that was supposed to be great and went to zero. And he, he told Jeff Bezos, you know, you don't forget these stories, he goes, how are you going to compete with Barnes and Nobles? Like, how are you going to do that? Fair question. Right? A little bit like, right? Blockbuster and, yeah. and Netflix. And he, he almost pulled the trigger and he didn't. And then he would have been trapped, you know, in these private investments. You're not getting out of that. No. You're gonna, he's going to ride it to being yeah. uh, one of the richest men in the world. And, uh, and he, didn't pull, he didn't do it. And, and that path dependency, and I don't exactly know what the lesson is in it, but in hearing that story, that there is a butterfly effect. And for you to make a ton of money, you also have to have been in a spot to not be emotional, to not be mm -hmm. risk averse, and it gets a little bit back to the dry powder question, and also to be able to say, "Look, I'm 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 in it. I'm not going to put my eggs in one basket. Yeah. So I'm going to lose half as much on that last one, so I can do ten and not five. Because if I only if I only give myself enough money to be right on five of these these twenty percent bucket yeah. things that you're talking about, you could go over for five, and then you've, you're out of the game, right? right? But if you have ten, you know the ninth could be the basket. Yeah. So that's the other thing I often tell people. Not often. I always tell people is. I'd rather them invest a lot less and do it over and over and over and over over the course of time. Because you cannot make good decisions and investments with emotions. And if you put too much money in something and it goes up, you think you're a genius and you might sell it. It goes down 25%, you want to jump off a building and you sell it. But if you think that Apple will still be here in five years, what does it matter if it goes up or down 20% this week? Yeah. And then down 8%, up 12%, who cares? If you think Apple is going to still be here in five, 10 years and 15 years and 20 years, why would you sell Apple? And people make emotional decisions because if they put in 100K out of the 100K they have saved up and it goes to 118, they're like, oh man, I'm a genius, they sell it. But if they put in 20K and it goes 20K to 23, they're happy, but they're not gonna go run to the bank, you know, and immediately have to go sell it. And vice versa, if it goes down, they're not gonna do the same thing either. I call it a visceral reaction. If it goes up too much or too, or down too much, you have a visceral reaction. If you have too much money in line, you're like, ah, 
it's panic and you have to sell something. And too often I hear these stories of someone that like, yeah, I invested in Amazon and then I sold it and then I bought back in and I sold back out. I'm like, why would I ever sell Amazon? Mm-hmm. Why would I ever just, why? Do I not think Amazon's gonna be cool tomorrow and next year and the year after? Is Jeff Bezos gonna stop? <laughs> I mean, he's young. Is Mark Zuckerberg gonna stop? He's a baby compared to like these bazillion dollar companies. Like, I just don't, from my investment perspective, I try to keep it as simple as possible for people. Like, if you believe that Apple and Netflix and Google and Facebook or Ford or Walmart or the places that you buy from are still gonna be here in five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, why would you sell? And the market's gonna give you opportunities. Look at look at Facebook, look at Meta a year ago. A year ago. It fell like 70%. Yeah. And and whatever whatever they were blowing on VR and whatever, yeah. it's just, it's it's the same-ish company and the market has a tendency to over overreact to two bad quarters and that's actually a great example. I actually made the mis- I made the mistake. You, uh, I had an analyst who called it who said 100 bucks a share. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And my average exit was 140, and now it's like back to whatever it is, 300 or 250. Yeah, you know, exactly. some, I, I actually don't even know because <laughs> yeah. I stopped looking at it. But, <laughs> yeah, but but if you if you're following these companies, you're going to get a chance to buy in on at Amazon at some point at a at a big down move. And and again, back to the dry powder, you got to do it because that's when people are selling or grayscale. Bitcoin, right? Yes. That's a good example. Like people were selling at minus forty-five percent a year ago. You had Bitcoin at a forty-five discount. Now it's converging on zero discount. Okay. A little bit like our closed-in fund story. So fascinating. Charles, do you have any questions? I have you, no questions. Your eyes are glowing the whole time. Just this listening. Is, this is insane. How much <clears throat> knowledge about the stock market and investments is it's just it's endless it's like if we asked you about snakes i mean you could talk yeah about i can go all <laughs> day the same way right <laughs> i love it though man i love to learn and uh you know i, I met some snakes where i work i bet <laughs> i bet i was asking this question like out of all the animals in the world snakes lions tigers and bears which one what animal are you most scared of and he always says humans <laughs> the truth the snakes on wall street right <laughs> yep <laughs> those are the biggest pythons out there mm. Okay, so in the third segment, I'd like to talk about charity, but a little bit of a twist because I want to add some gaming into it since we met at a charity poker tournament, which I got second place in, to Shannon Elizabeth. Uh-huh. <laughs> so frustrating. Well, that's, that's a good person to lose to. It, well, it's good for the, for the charity and for the brand because obviously she's very famous, so it was fun. We get down to heads up. There's like three, 400 people there, and I'm so excited because my first time there, I, wanna, I get to show off and like, yeah, I'm at the final table, right? Get down to two of us. It's like one or two in the morning, which I didn't expect. And I'm heads up versus Shannon Elizabeth, one of my first crushes on, you know, in, from the movies, right? And we would, a very specific movie. Uh, yes, one a very movie, specific one role movie. she had. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I learned a lot about life during that movie. Okay. <laughs> so we're playing heads up, and we're going back and forth, and I get Ace King, and she has Ace Eight. It's not that I'm bitter that she hit an eight, right? I mean. <laughs> <laughs> so she wins the charity poker tournament and I actually realized like it was great for the charity right the branding the marketing for them was what we were there for um, but it made me addicted I've never missed it since then I fly in every year to see you our friend Casey and to play poker and like to try to get back there I made it back one more time I still have not won that thing yet I got fourth mm. all right so why first of all the question is why is charity important for people individually for them and their families or for their businesses, why should they be involved in charity in some fashion? Yeah, so I don't think you have to give to charity because you, because you feel it's an obligation if you have extra money, um, because it's doing the right thing, because it's it's what's expected of you. I think actually it's not bad 
to realize that it also makes you feel good and you can do it for that let's call it selfish reason because it makes you feel good to help people um of course the earlier things i said are are, are true as well and the charity that you uh got um american pied by uh, uh shan elizabeth um was is for promoting um charter schools mm -hmm. the charter school system which has been shown very recently in some pretty robust studies to be outperforming for at least in New York for black and brown kids significantly over the public school system and it gives parents choice and all that so something that I went to public school and I really believe in and so so I think it's just it's it's like investing like Tarzan was saying like it's endless the number of things you can do the ways you can approach it you could say I don't know what to do let me give it to the American Red Cross or to whatever because they'll know what to do with it and I have a, a bit of a different approach but but I think that um there are ways to find situations where you can basically multiply your impact or you can find a situation that's very personal to you. I, I heard you talking about that a little bit and it made me think of some, some of my own examples where you can do something like super micro. And um, and I think that in some ways that as a as a human, that brings you closer to the, you know, to actually the doing of it. And I don't mean giving food in a soup kitchen. That's beautiful. But I mean, like finding an individual that needs help and and maybe changing their life and and uh Is there any stories like that you have an actual scenario um so i was reading the new york times one day uh and i was a really good chess player when i was a kid i was a master uh and i read about a boy who was not that great but he had won like state championship in new york i mean it sounds like he's great right but he had won <laughs> like all right his rating was not yet that great and um and the new york times uh journalist uh, wrote about how um he was homeless. His dad was doing two Uber shifts and they were homeless from Nigeria. This boy, Tani, T-A-N-I. And, and there was a Kickstarter. And, and I just, it, the story just resonated that the dad is trying so hard and the boy actually is, is, is quite good. And, and it was compelling to me. And so I, I, um, I put in a, uh, I put in 10 K in, mm -hmm. in the Kickstarter. At the end of all that, they had raised like $250,000. Okay. Whoa. I, as one does, I sorted like who else gave you want to know who, what club you're in. And I was so shocked. Like there was one other don donation, exactly mine. I don't think we're uh, destined to meet, but she should meet Tani because he never met her as Camilla Caballo. Okay, so mm -hmm. she also gave him 10K, right? Nice. So, so the so the fast forward three four years, the dad is now a real estate broker. They're not homeless. The boy is the number one kid in America, 13 and under. Whoa. Okay. okay? And and like there's the a butterfly book. effect of that is crazy. Right now, I don't I don't think my 10K changed changed that. But you think about comparing that to like giving to like your university sure. that sits there and it just grows and grows and grows and then they waste it or they do whatever with it or, you know, uh, or they put it to good use. But but it's so much you don't feel that impact. And so that was for me something. And then, of course, you often get to meet that person. And I, I have a recent story from being in Israel, meeting an ex hostage um, where, where where you can get really personal with it and meeting Tani. And uh, I didn't meet him for years. And then I um. And then I brought him to a school in uh, in Bushwick, where there's um, uh, there's a fir there's a firm on the investing side uh, that um, works with this school, and um, uh, that I'm very impressed with. And so they asked, "Can you come?" And I said, "I can do better than me coming. I can bring, I can bring Tanny." Yeah. Did you actually play poker or play chess with him? So first, he he like told his life story. They had mapped out his book onto the these sheets on the wall, and then he played the kids, and then um, and then yeah, they asked me to play him a game. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's number one kid in America under 13. He's higher rated than me. I'm kind of over the hill, but something weird happened. I, I kind of I brought I brought the I brought the Tarzan in me, and, 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 and then I had this weird moment where I'm like, but these kids like 
he's their age and they kind of idolize him. They've read a book about him. What do I do? You know, Shema and um, I did not throw the game. I ended up beating Tanny, which wow. uh, which was a weird. <laughs> that was like a. I don't know what the right thing to do is. You can uh, you can tell me. No, no, so playing playing full steam is the right thing to do. Same thing, like people talk about with their kids. Like you always see the videos, like the kid trying to throw a basketball, and like, the, <laughs> the big brother swats it. Like yeah. the same thing with wrestling and everything in between. Like our, a lot of our society got soft on thinking it's we need to coddle them. We I need to feel the, the loss so that I get better. I, if I don't feel the loss or feel the pain, I'm not going to go train or practice. Why would I practice and train if I'm it's okay if I get a seventh place trophy? Anyways, whole different subject. Okay, so I'm glad that you fought hard in that game, and obviously it's hard to beat someone that's that good. At chess chess is one of those games that it's like actually i'll tell you a fun story phil ivy to me was the number one poker player in history and oftentimes in most sports there's like is it lebron or michael jordan is it this person or this person in poker it's just phil ivy he's just the number one there's no question about it cash games online tournaments and everything in between he's he's taking some money off me i, I bet <laughs> <laughs> so he had a charity poker event at the golden nugget casino i'll never forget many many years ago and there was a grandmaster there. You probably know who's, I don't know the name off the top of my head, but you probably know him. And he has got one of the highest ratings on the planet. Mm -hmm. And the gimmick was, you go to his table, to his chessboard, and he says, you choose an amount to donate. You pick any spot on the board. If I don't checkmate you in that spot, you win. And they had a, this crazy prize. I forgot what the prize was, but it was crazy. And you're like, wait. Can I just commit like commit like chest suicide and like die over here or get stuck over here? And I asked him that flat out. Like I'm trying to like basically know I'm gonna lose, but can I lose somewhere else on the board? Mm -hmm. and he's like, sure, you could try. I played eleven times at a thousand dollars each, and I tried everything not to lose in those spots, and he beat me every single time. That was the biggest sucker bet. I'm I'm embarrassed, you Dan. I don't even understand because he could he the only way you would not lose on the square that he want he said you were gonna lose on you'd have to beat him. No way. Yep. Yep. So so that's really what those odds looked like. And I it's mean, okay. It's I knew I was going to lose because I was doing it for charity, you, but I didn't think it was like, I thought I could commit su chest suicide. No, they, there's, they, don't, they don't let you do that. You could you could resign. Actually, that would have been a really good trick because you can resign yeah, and that is a legal move. <laughs> resign, move one. Yeah. yeah actually, that would have been awesome. <laughs> okay. On the poker side of things, there's actually a strategy called Kill Phil. And Kill Phil strategy, there was a book about this, is if you are outwitted or outskilled by your opponents let's say you're playing against a guy like phil ivy which is the kind of the main name of the kill phil book is you just go all in whenever you have x amount of hands and it tells you like ace king ace queen ace jack ace 10 pocket eights pocket nines pocket tens they give you a range of hands mm -hmm. and your job is just to go all in mm -hmm. no matter what they do no matter what's happening no matter what position just go all in why well for the most part it's hard for the phil in this example to have a hand right there's 169 hand combinations in poker, and there's only X amount that are good enough to call an all-in bet. Second part is if they you know, muster up the courage to call, they then have to beat you. And so you still have a good shot at them you know, losing to you. In chess, there's nothing you can do. There, there's, um, there's some interesting stuff that's been done where you, you say, I'm going to play you two games at the same time. One of them's white, one of them's black, and you're the world champion. You're not going to beat me. So you're, you're white, you go first, world champion moves out his king pawn two squares. Now you're on board two, you just copy the world champion. You make his move, okay? <laughs> and then you make your move, and then, and so, so whatever he does, whatever he does, you, you do on the other board, 
Now that 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 sounds like it works, and there's been like stories based on it. it actually, doesn't work for a complicated reason involving check and whatever. I won't go into it. In chess, there basically is no luck. There is bluffing a little bit sure. because sometimes something's a little sure. so foggy. Six six moves ahead. Six moves ahead, and it's like you can. And if a great player makes a move, the opponent might think probably it works. And there there's so you could do like kind of semi bluffs, but the game basically the one of the most appealing things about it is there is no there is no luck whereas you know i've beaten phil ivy in a hand and i've beaten phil helmuth in a hand but over the course of time over the course of time i'm going to be the big loser yeah okay also on the charity side why do you like this charity in particular when you go to the hedge fund charity poker tournament are there other charities that you like like how do you decide what you're willing to put your time and sometimes your name on because you're actually on the advisory board for that charity like when do you decide this is the charity i'm going to support yeah so like it's nice to to do something local so you can feel that effect even if it's something big um maimonides uh talked about the highest the different levels of charity like giving to someone you know is not as honorable it's it's all honorable it's not as high a level as giving to somebody you don't know giving to somebody in your town is not as good as someone in another town because the more distant it is the least you had to benefit from it and i've been interested in having a mix a little bit like your 40 40 20 some higher risk things some things that are very specific to something i care about and then the gotham really struck a nerve because again public school kids um i've given to other um uh public schools i the one i went to uh stuyvesant or um you know various others but in new york there is one charity called robin hood that raises a nine-figure amount basically every year Whoa. it's the number one charity in New York and it mostly gives to, to um, poverty and you know they have special uh, every year special um, uh, ble- uh, drives f- for different topics but one one good example I think for you about about multiplier effect sometimes you see a situation it's a little bit distressed and you can say how can I fix that and make two parties happy so maybe like uh, six seven years ago after Hamilton the you know the musical had been and the creator of Hamilton went to a um, Lynn Manuel Miranda went to a New York City public school, um, so it was already impossible to get tickets. And but a lot of people had seen it; it had been out for like six months, nine months. And Robin Hood thought, "Let's work with Hamilton. Let's we'll be able to raise tons of money. Let's have a Robin Robin Hood Hamilton night." And they set it like six months later. And so, and they put tickets, let's say at three thousand dollars a ticket, and they were going to sell like whatever it is, a thousand tickets and make an incredible amount of money for for however many the the theater holds, 800 people, incredible amount of money for the charity. The problem they ran into is by then, their really well-heeled donors had all seen Hamilton Mm -hmm. and the cast had just changed. So it was no longer the, you know, uh, what is his name? Lamar Odom and not Lamar Odom. uh, (laughs) No, not the basketball player. Lamar Burton? Lamar, well, anyway, well, uh, well, you know, uh, Otis, anyway, his beautiful voice. So that's definitely close to his name, but not his name. But Lin-Manuel was not performing. And um, and so they couldn't sell the tickets. What are they going to do? They have this night coming up. They're like still a thousand, uh, sorry, they're only like a third sold. And so I took the number one performing charter school in America called Success Academy that have a few hundred teachers. And my wife and I had endowed a school in, in Bensonhurst. I, I'm from Brooklyn, Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, one in Harlem. And we thought, okay, let's buy the tickets, donate them to the teachers, mm. and you kind of get, you fill the house. Right. And we got like these gigantic letters from like, you know, dozens and dozens of teachers basically none of them had seen it because it was super expensive sure. on teacher salary so it was like a way of doing something nice for instead of just giving the money 
solving a problem and making two parties happy. And so you, know, you can look at that as a creative opportunity, or you could look at sometimes where you can create a matching gift and matching. There's a thing about matching where someone says, oh, I give a dollar and I get and I get two for that impact, where sometimes doing things as matches get someone else to do something as matches, and then it's three or four dollars. And, um, and so I think there are ways to be creative with charity and feel good about it and, and and actually create extra value versus just kind of dumping off some money to, you know, to the, uh, you know, to your university. Final question. I asked this to celebrities and athletes for years, and I've never asked someone in the hedge fund or investing category. At the end of the day, 50 years, 100 years, 200 years from now, when Boaz Weinstein passes on, do you leave your kids billions of dollars? Well, I don't have billions of dollars, so uh, well, so you we will fifty hundred years, <laughs> years from now. You will. <laughs> um, I think it's I think it's it's fine and great to do that, but only when they reach a certain age, and with some maybe some direction about how it's going to be how it's going to be spent. You know, there's this there's this reminder I have of the impact for me on that question and charity uh, of um, something about Warren Buffett that that probably you know people a younger generation don't even know which was, you know, greatest investor of all time. According to many people, he becomes a multi-multi-billionaire. He was around the level of Bill Gates, and he was giving no money away. And Bill Gates was already giving billions of dollars away. And they and it kind of became a thing. Like on 60 Minutes, he said, why are you not giving any money away? And he said, I'm going to only give my son $100 million, if I, if I recall. And all this is going to go to help society, poverty, this and that. But since I am able to earn a higher return than everyone else, right. <laughs> Why don't we make it the biggest sum possible and then it can do the most good? Yep. And that kind of he kind of got away with that. Later he then gave right, dumped so off a so chunk Zuckerberg. of it to, to Gates and yeah. yeah. But but I listened to uh one of my investing heroes, a guy named Seth Klarman, speak about this and he just crushed him. He did a mic drop. Well he Buffett wasn't there, but he talked about this and he did basically a mic drop and I said it was checkmate. It was he said, Okay, so Warren Buffett's compounding his investments at ten percent a year instead of seven. He's better than everyone else. And three compounded over 20 years. I mean, a huge oh, wow. chunk difference. And that's his whole argument, right? He's compounding at 10. And at the end, there's going to be this big pile, and then he's going to do good with it. What makes him think poverty's not compounding at 14? Hmm. You know? And you're going to take take that out 10 years, poverty compounding, and all the pain that gets compounded. Wow. And I'm like, boom, oh, that's it. God. That's it. You can slow down Buffett, Buffett was wrong. Like, you know, I mean, uh, it's just it's just so clear. And so you should be giving throughout your life. And um, and so I hope not to be in that spot because I'll have given away a, a, a chunk way before near the end. Wow. Well, thank you for flying to Los Angeles. Not for <laughs> us, but 10% for us. Uh, hopefully we can have you back out here where we'll bring the RV motorhome out to see you in New York, maybe during the Hedge Fund Charity Poker Tournament next time at Gotham <laughs> Hall. Um, but as we do this here, as you guys know, the Money Mondays, the whole point of this and why the podcast is number one for, I think it's 41 weeks in a row now, thanks to you guys, and we're coming up on our one-year anniversary, uh, is people need to have these discussions. We all grew up thinking it's rude to talk about money, and I think, and Tarzan thinks, and maybe Boaz thinks, that it's rude to not have these discussions and understand about credit and finance and what is a FICO score and what is taxes and what do you do with investments and loans and salaries and all the things that we have to talk about because it's real life. There's nothing rude about talking about real life situations and I think it's really important. I'm glad you guys are sharing it. I think that if you can continue to help us, it's liking, commenting, subscribing, sharing with your friends, continue to listen to the podcast. You can also go to the moneymondays.com. We do a weekly coaching call every Monday at four o'clock where we deep dive on questions on zoom. So we can actually answer questions for you guys. 
Uh, check out Saba Capital. They're obviously one of the number one. What, I think it's, it sounds like it's number one. Depends on the year. <laughs> Depends <laughs> on the year. Last year, number one closed end fund out of 274. Did I remember that right? Close. Close to 247, uh, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Really close. It's fascinating. Um, some of the things might be complicated here for you. If you heard words like derivatives or shorting or things like that, Google those words. Understand the terms. Again, whether you're going to be a stockbroker or a trader one day, that part's irrelevant. It's interesting to hear these things and hear these topics. And I'm really excited to have someone with this career uh, to be here to answer those questions and give you those topics. But just Google those type of terms, understand them, do your research, check out things that you might be interested in investing into. And we will see you guys next Monday on the Money Mondays.